Well, good morning. As Brooke already said, uh, it is a gift to be alive, isn't it? And a gift of God's grace to be here and to gather together in Christ's name. And so we thank the Lord of life for that and trust him. A few sort of family updates. Last night, our brother Steve Kubik's father passed away, and the girls made it there in time. They flew last night, and they were there, and I received a text at about 2.15 in the morning uh, telling us that Steve's dad um, went into eternity. So we want to pray for them. We've been praying for them. On Wednesday night, Steve's dad has been on the prayer list. And then yesterday, and I want to thank the church members who took time Yesterday afternoon, we gathered uh, for a memorial service for Linda Denai's daughter, Shauna Redman, and she died as well on September 30th. And it is a Christian thing to bear one another's burdens. It is like Christ to grieve with those who grieve. And what a joy that we know the Lord of life and who says that he is the resurrection and the life. And so we want to pray for them. We want to continue to pray for our sister, Olga, who is suffering with cancer. And then, of course, this week in the news, as most of you do know already, uh, the shooting in Las Vegas that has taken much life and changed many lives forever. And we want to pray for uh, them. Of course, the world, and not wrongly so, is looking for uh, is. They're looking for a motive. And yet we as believers understand the depravity of human nature. And hundreds of years ago, the Apostle Paul said, in the last days, what kind of times will come? Perilous times will come. And these will punctuate history, both on large-scale wars and in individual acts like we have seen this week, this atrocity. And it is a reminder to us to long for a perfect king and a new creation, and a new heaven. So let's pray for those who are suffering. There's many on our hearts today. Let's pray for the people in Las Vegas and those who have now traveled back home to grieve. And let's lift them up because this is our responsibility as Christ followers. Let's pray. Lord, we have much to rejoice about, and yet we have heavy hearts as well. We do thank you that you are a good shepherd, that you have sent your son so that we might live, and it's a gift of your grace. And we pray for those who right now are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that those who are grieving, that those who have lost loved ones, that they would fear no evil because you are with them. May they know the help of the Holy Spirit right now comforting them. We think of the Cubics and the Denies and the Redmonds that you would encourage their hearts this morning. Lord, we ask that they would know the sufficiency of your grace in this difficult time. Lord, thank you for a church that cares and shows your love to others when it's inconvenient. For you have shown that kind of love to us. 
Lord, we pray for those who are still reeling from, through fear and grief, even hate, of what happened in Las Vegas. And we pray that your glory would be known in this atrocity. That you would use this, as you have throughout history, to exalt yourself and lead people to a knowledge, a saving knowledge of your Son. Lord, you can bring light out of darkness. You have sent your Son to shine in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome him. We pray that Christ would be exalted through this. We pray that you would comfort those who are hurting and grieving. And at the same time, we ask for protection. And while we enjoy peace and life, may we be faithful servants of yours. Lord, so we pray that you would encourage us by your Spirit and through your Word. And help us. You are a very present help in trouble. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, this is the second part of a sermon series called Reformation 500, and the reason for that is this month marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Go back 500 years, and it's 1517, uh, the time when they say that the Reformation started when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the, the church door, the castle church door in Wittenberg. And theologians refer to the solas from the Latin word meaning alone. So it's not that um, the Roman Catholic Church at the time never preached grace. They did preach grace. They did not preach grace alone. They preached faith, but not faith alone. They taught that the scriptures were God's word, but they were not the final authority alone. They wanted to bring onto this tradition, and they wanted to bring up to that magisterium, and so the Reformers came out of this darkness and confronted sort of the bully in the backyard. This morning we will focus upon sola gratia, which is grace alone. And that word alone is very important as we're going to see because we love to add to God's grace. We love to add our cooperation to what God is doing. We like to think that somehow we can enter into this and sort of strike a deal where it's, both parts. This is a great time, if we didn't get the slide up, that our children are dismissed. Because that's what you're hearing. You're hearing the dismissing of the children. Um, so if your child typically goes to uh, for their children's lesson, this is the time you can release them without distraction. We could even play theme music for them. <laughs> so last week we considered Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our highest authority. And this week, grace alone. You know, it's often described, grace is often described as undeserved favor. And it is. But it's more than that. Let me read you a definition. Grace is the undeserved favor of God bestowed upon those who are positively deserving of the wrath of God. And that's going to help sort of grace shine a little brighter. Grace is the undeserved favor of God bestowed upon those who are positively deserving of the wrath of God. Now, when we look back 500 years, we think what Martin Luther did, sort of a monk and a mallet and these propositions to sort of oppose what the church was teaching during that day. Um, 
But the Reformation didn't spring from entirely just one man. Though, though Luther and some of the other personalities sort of tower above the others, there was so much more going on during that time where it seems, and probably was, that the Spirit of God was stirring men and women to courageously reform, right? Not a capital R at that point, but to return back to what the Scriptures taught. For instance, 300 years, some 300 years even before Martin Luther, a few of those who helped build roads to the Reformation, Peter Waldo, 300 years before Martin Luther, John Wycliffe, John Huss, Girolamo Savonarola, all worthy of consideration, incredible lives, well-lived, and biographies. Uh, these are just pre-Reformation personalities that God used to sort of pave the way. Hundreds of years after these pre-reformers, and within the same lifespan of Martin Luther, there was another significant reformer. Now, where Luther was an explosive personality to the Roman Catholic Church back during his day, this individual has become more of an explosive personality today. And when I mention his name, you'll know why. This reformer was born when Martin Luther was about 25 years old. He is a French Protestant reformer who lived from 1509 to 1564. His name is John Calvin. He was eight years old when Luther posted his 95 thesis, and as an eight-year-old boy could probably not care less, and even when he started to study law, at that point probably had not heard much about Martin Luther, yet Martin Luther's teaching was going to have a great impact, not just in Germany, but now it was going to trickle over and affect this young man and start to have a Reformation effect in France. Of course, most of us, when we hear the name Calvin, think of what? Okay, Calvinism. Okay, you, you, you do realize Luther lived before the Lutheran church formed, right? And that Calvinism is a spring off of Calvin's teaching. Even the five points of Calvinism, which he's best known for, came about after his death. Okay, so, so it's not like, you know, Calvin sat down and said, I'm going to create these five points and use an acrostic and, and really upset the apple cart. You know, it's, it's, that's not what he did. We have to understand these, these men's tension, culture, religion of the day, and who they were fighting against. In the early decades of the 1600s, Calvin's followers largely controlled the church in the Netherlands. But there was another group who parted ways with the teaching of Calvin, especially in terms of human nature, the freedom of the will, and the role we play in salvation. And what surprises a lot of people is that it's another Reformed man. Okay, so if you, if you have a problem with the term Reformed, there are another, there's another man, Jacob Arminius, who then went to defend Calvinism, and in defending it came up with what is called the five points of the remonstrance. So you have these, these competing five points after, after Calvin's death. Young people, I'm trying to make the Reformation interesting. It's really hard to do it sometimes, so just, just, just hang, hang with me. It's exciting, and you're like, no, I really don't think so. No, it is exciting, and, and I want us to be familiar with some of the great personalities. And by the way, when we highlight personalities, Luther had his problems until the day he died. Luther never reformed fully as we think he should have. Same with Calvin. Same with 
Wycliffe. Same with, same with us, right? So we need to be fair as we are we're looking back and saying, the reason we see clearer and understand more, and this is often said of church history, is because we stand on the shoulders of those who went before us. Imperfect. John the Baptist, imperfect, who then prayed that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. Well, when there, was a, when, there, when there was a dissension or a conflict and it came down to, and you can, we're not going to be able to unfold everything here, uh, the document that is the Canons of Dort, which was a 50-page document, was distilled down to five points. And they used tulip, which is the Netherlands' famous flower, which was where John Calvin's teachings of, and, and reform in the church had its greatest effect. And they use this flower as an acrostic to explain what Calvin taught. But to understand what Calvin really taught, you have to read Calvin. Not just an acrostic or not just an opponent's view. And understand, again, out of the culture of which Calvin was teaching and opposing. As one of my theology professors told me in undergrad, you can't distill the doctrines of Calvin into a flower. And so if that's all you understand and you're like, I really don't like that, and you're simply reading the opposite side, that's an unfair way to treat anyone without understanding their character, their doctrine, and the religious climate of their day. Before his death at age 55, John Calvin played an important role in the Reformation. So while, while Germany was experiencing great Reformation, France lagged behind. Okay, so you still have this incredible control of the church in France where, where Luther's Germany was starting to spring forward into Reformation. As Stephen Nichols records, such was the case in Paris in the 1520s when Calvin as a teenager was pursuing his academic degrees. Only a handful were entertaining Luther's ideas. Those who adopted them were arrested or driven underground or forced to flee to the hill country. I'll give you another kind of a sense or a pulse on how important this Reformation was. Calvin initially studied law, desired to become part of Paris's intelligentsia, really never set himself forward to study theology or to become one of the church leaders. He then found himself serving under Nicholas Kopp, who served as rector in Sorbonne, a Roman Catholic stronghold in France. So now you have Calvin in the church serving under one of the rectors in what, is, in what is one of the Roman Catholic strongholds in France who is still now lagging behind the Reformation in Germany. Through Kopp's influence, which is interesting, Nicholas Kopp surprised everyone when he is serving as rector and he comes out in strong support for guess who? Martin Luther. Everyone's shocked. And because of his influence and his coming out and saying, no, these reforms are needed, these are necessary, then Calvin left the field of law and the Roman Catholic Church and in May 1534 was born again. But Paris was no place for Reformation sympathizers, so Calvin traveled around the country and somehow managed to publish what would become the first of many editions of one of his colossal works, which is the Institutes of Christian Religion. And this often brings up a question. If, you, if you're familiar with, with his, what's now a two-volume work of his Institutes of Christian Religion, um, why did Calvin preface his Institutes with a letter to a Roman Catholic king? 
You can actually get uh, some of the some of the re- uh, the books and references. I'll recommend hopefully tomorrow in an email. There will be four, but you can you can actually see a photo of his handwritten letter to one of these kings. See, not only was Francis monarch Roman Catholic, he was actively persecuting reformers. Calvin hoped the book, Institutes of Christian Religion, Calvin's reforms, whether you agree, so let's just take the five points, whether you agree with three, four, four point five points, five points have benefited the church. We benefit from John Calvin's reforms from France to the rest of Europe, now to America. And what I'm trying to do is remove unnecessary suspicion, fear, and the unfortunate maligning of a great reformer, and for us to be careful to form correct opinions and to regard to his doctrines, character, and influence. So let me just, in an effort to do that, let me read to you a list of people who either considered them Calvinists or clearly admit being strongly influenced by John Calvin's teachings. Benjamin Keach, primary author of the 1689 Baptist Confession. John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress. The two Princeton theologians, Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield. George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, two preachers with a heart for evangelism and revival. Isaac Watts, hymn writer, theologian, pastor. William Carey, known as the founder of the modern missions movement. Adoniram Judson, the first American missionary. Why our son Isaiah's middle name is Judson. George Mueller, evangelist and orphanage director. David Brainerd, missionary to the American Indians in the 1700s. Robert Moffat, the first missionary to reach the interior of Africa with the gospel. He also translated the entire Bible and John Bunyan's Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress into Setswana, the Setswana language. David Livingston, arguably the most famous missionary to the continent of Africa. John Newton wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. We sang a version of that this morning. John Owen, incredible theologian and author. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator. William Wilberforce, slavery abolitionist. And Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. That's just a list. So you didn't know you... You didn't know you loved Calvinists, did you? And, and it's not just that all these great theologians and church leaders came under his influence, but John Calvin and his reforms, and, and especially his, his work on the doctrines of grace, sola gratia, grace alone plus nothing, grace plus none of your cooperation, grace And be careful not to make your faith a work where you enter into this agreement with God in procuring your salvation. No, grace alone, sola gratia. What John Calvin aimed to do was to focus on and teach the doctrines of grace from the whole counsel of God. Let me just fast forward about 350 years. And on Tuesday, June 25th, 1861, Charles Haddon Spurgeon... And you can, by the way, read, uh, he has, and I, I encourage you to do a lot more broader reading, but this is our focus this morning. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon wrote, and this surprises a lot of people, a defense of Calvinism. If you just Google that, Charles Spurgeon, defense of Calvinism, it'll be the, probably one of the first lines it brings up. It's a PDF document, and you can read everything here. I'm not sure that you can get it in the paperback anymore. But it is worth your reading of a man 
who still probably is the most quoted preacher in the world. On Tuesday, 25th, Charles Haddon Spurgeon chose John 6.37 as his text to preach from. John 6.37 says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Now I'm going to read a lengthy portion from Spurgeon. So just, just stay tuned in. Spurgeon said, What a difference there is between the words of Christ and those of all mere men. Look at the text before us. Here we have, in two small sentences, the sum and substance of all theology. The great questions which have divided the church in all ages, the apparently contradictory doctrines which have set one minister of Christ against his fellow, are here revealed so simply and plainly. Take the first sentence of my text. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Spurgeon goes on, what a weighty sentence. Here we have taught us what is called in the present day high Calvinistic doctrine. The purpose of God, the certainty that God's purpose will stand, the invincibility of God's will and the absolute assurance that Christ shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Look at the second sentence of my text. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Here we have the richness, the fullness, the unlimited extent of the power of Christ to save those who put their trust in him. Mark too how our Lord Jesus Christ gives us the whole truth. Now, Spurgeon is going to highlight a tension that still exists today. So he goes on to say, quote, We have many ministers who can preach well upon the first sentence. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Just set them going upon election or everlasting covenant engagements, and they will be earnest and eloquent, for they are fond of dwelling upon these points, and a well-instructed child of God can hear them with delight and profit. Such preachers are often the fathers of the church and the very pillars thereof, but unfortunately, many of these excellent brethren cannot preach so well upon the second sentence of my text. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. When they get to that truth... They are half afraid of it. They hesitate to preach what they consider to be too open salvation. They do not deny it, yet they stutter and stammer sadly when they get upon this theme. Then on the other hand, Spurgeon says, we have a large number of good ministers who can preach on the second clause of the text. But they cannot preach on the first clause. How fluent is their language as they tell out the freeness of salvation. Here they are much at home in their preaching. But we are sorry to be compelled to, compelled to say that very often they are not much at home when they come to doctrinal matters and they would find it rather a difficult matter to preach fluently on the first sentence of my text. They would, if they attempted to preach from it, endeavor to cut out all this, that savors of divine sovereignty. They do not preach the whole truth which is in Jesus. And that is a great explanation from Charles Spurgeon on the tension that exists today. And sadly and unfortunately, that continues to divide God's people, good people. The crown gem of true Christian theology, and I'm not even just going to say Protestant theology, but true Christian theology as it existed, as it was taught, is its commitment to sola gratia, the assertion that we are saved by grace, got to add this word, alone. 
So to what did Rome object to in the Reformers' teaching? What is the line of difference between Rome and the Reformation lie? It lies in a single word. Sola. Alone. The Reformers maintain that sinner, a sinner is saved by God's grace, his unmerited favor, alone. This means, and this is, by the way, this is good news. This means that there is nothing you can do in cooperation with God saving you. Now think about that. Salvation from beginning to end is the sovereign gift of God to the unworthy and undeserving. Here's the definition again. Grace is the undeserved favor of God bestowed upon those who are positively deserving of the wrath of God. So here's the danger. Remember what we said last week. The reformers had a saying. Reformed, always what? Always reforming. So if the church gets to the point where it starts to add a little tradition, add a little morality, add a little cooperation with God, then there needs to be reformation. We need to get back to sola scriptura. What does scripture teach? So why has the church, even since the Reformation, now moved into such a low view of God's grace? So the grace, grace is no longer amazing. As a matter of fact, a lot of the ways that I've actually heard it presented, a lot of the ways that evangelistic programs present it, is not overwhelming amazing grace. It's, oh, I just have to say those words? I just have to move down an aisle? I can do that. Now, did you mean it? Oh, yeah. Now, did you say those words from your heart? Oh, yes. Now, that may have played part in how God brought you to himself. Right? With, with the heart one believes, with the mouth one confesses, those are necessary parts. But once you make that a cooperation with God and your salvation, it is no longer, it's no longer sola gratia. Here's why we have such a low view of God's grace. Number one, we have a high view of ourself and our ability. We think all we need is a kickstand to an already decent bicycle. Now, that's kind of funny because a lot of our guys in here ride, and there's no kickstand, right? You lean it up against a tree to take a picture with the side of the gears on it, right? So we think we're already a decent bicycle. We just need a kickstand. We need a little help. Or listen, the batteries run down a little bit. The lights still come on. I just need you to pull your car up and jump start me and I'll be good. You know, that is not salvation. That is not what the scriptures teach. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Not only do we have a high view of self and our ability, we have a low view of sin. We felt that this week. Not as, not as bad as him. I've never mass murdered anyone. I've never kidnapped anyone. I stay within 10 miles of the speed limit. <laughs> or 25. That was, I was speaking on behalf of you, not me. So I pledge to the American flag. 
My parents were pretty good people. So what's the big deal? We have a low view of sin. The big deal is this. James 2.10 says, For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. I don't know that we fully believe that. Because I love to present to God my not-as-bad-as-others theology. And because I'm not as bad as others, then I, you, you really didn't have to send your son. I'm sure there was another way I could have made up this deficiency. Him, he needs it. We don't say that out loud. And that's where we have to come back to grace alone. We have a low view of Christ's sacrifice. We reason that we weren't evil enough to need a sacrifice and somehow we can make up the margin. Listen to what scriptures teach. See, if you were the only human being in the world after Adam and Eve, Jesus still would have had to come and die in your place. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22. And we have a high view of our seeking after God, right? This whole seeker generation. All I need, you know, my moral compass is skewed. It's not totally off. And all I need is somebody to point me in the right direction because my moral compass is okay. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless what? The father who sent me draws him. No one can come unless somebody else initiates. Romans 3, 10 to 12, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And also we have a low view of God's wrath and judgment. We don't understand that we are children of wrath as others. We reason that since we've only been a sinner for, say, maybe eight years or 16 years or 75 years, then, then God can only punish me for how long? Eight years or 16 years or 75 years. To do otherwise would be unjust, we reason, but that is our low view of sin, our low view of depravity, and our low view of God's wrath and judgment. John 3.36 says this, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, with that dark backdrop, grace is the undeserved favor of God bestowed upon those who are positively deserving of the wrath of God. Now, quickly, we're going to look at the parable in Luke 15. Please open your scriptures to Luke chapter 15. Often this is called the parable of what? The, the prodigal son. It's actually a parable about two sons and a father. The prodigal gets most of the attention, but there's another son and there's a father. And, of course, it's a parable, and Jesus is teaching this. And in his teaching, this is, this is probably one of the parables that ends up getting him killed because the older brother is the Pharisee. We're not going to totally reread this again, but I want to highlight a few points. Luke 15, verse 11, And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. See, the dad endured his son's request to tear his life apart and act as a dead man already. To give the inheritance early 
The son was asking the father, I want nothing to do with you except what I can benefit from you. And in that day, a patriarch typically did not do that. But in this picture of the father, he does. The father endures the pain of rejected love from the younger son. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. He left the family. He had spent everything. He squandered his property in reckless living. Go down to verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Right? He hired himself out to a citizen in the land, and he ended up doing what a Jewish man would never think of doing, and that is working with pigs. Pigs are unclean. Working with sheep, but not pigs. And this is what he will do. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. See, after reaching the bottom, he plans to go home to the father. And he realizes he's no longer worthy to be called a son. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son hasn't even reached home yet. And the father runs. It is said that patriarchs and wealthy landowners owners did not run. They waited The picture of the father that Jesus is presenting is one of understanding and tenderness and compassion. And he runs out to the son. Verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's a confession or a repentance and a turning. And yet he's still not a son. In his own mind, he's not worthy to be a son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Why? You know, the son hasn't done anything yet. The son hasn't proved himself to be faithful. The son hasn't even really proved himself to be authentic. And there's a celebration for this one who turns to the father. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father brings him back in. The father shows grace, undeserved favor bestowed upon those who are positively deserving of punishment. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, a fattened calf, right? Because we eat meat. A lot of us eat meat all the time. So a fattened calf means very little, but that wasn't the case during these times. 
This was a, a rare delicacy. This was a huge party for this son. The fattened calf's a big deal. It's like a whole village kind of deal. Look at the older brother's response in verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. You see this picture of a father again? His father seeking. His father runs to the son that returned. His father goes out and entreats him. I'd have been like, you can go into your room and you can wait for me. The father comes out and entreats him. But he answered his father. No, he, he does, look at the next words. He doesn't use a respectful address, but rather a sharp insult that basically is interpreted, look you, this is the son to the father, look you. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. So that's what's been in his heart. That I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The, the brother basically says, I've earned at least a goat. And I should have had some say in how you spend your wealth. Because this wealth is now my wealth. I didn't ask for it early. You owe me. And yet you give this one the fattened calf. Notice how the father responds. Verse 31. And he said to him, son, not look you, son, my child, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Not just the goat, but the fat calf, everything. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Here's one of the big points. Your brother was dead. That's what Ephesians 2 says. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. This, your brother, was dead and is alive. Let me ask you, what did the brother do? What did that brother do? He was lost and is found. See, there's three, three, three key things that stand out. Jesus says a lot about God in this parable. God is a father unlike any other father. God is a father unlike any other father in this room. Jesus brings together the majesty and the tenderness of God, his meekness, his care, his unconditional pursuit. It also says a lot about sin. See, we get the traditional view of sin. Squandered as well. Sin. Hired prostitutes. Sin. Insolence. Sin. We get that. It's easy to call those sin. But what about the son who stayed home? He was alienated from the father. He had unspoken desires in his heart. He wanted to party with his friends. He wanted the goat. He wanted what the father could give him. They, see, they both wanted what the father could give them, but neither of them wanted the father. They wanted status and wealth, but both were lost in the end. And, and it ends. I mean, it really is sort of like that's where it ends. I mean, when Brooke got done reading it this morning, you're like, I want, I want the rest of the story, right? Because what happens is the, 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 the younger brother who hired prostitutes and squandered his life is saved. He's with the father in the house. And the older brother who obeyed everything stayed near the father. Where is he? He's outside. 
In spite of the second son's goodness, he is lost. Third, Jesus says a lot about salvation. There are older and younger brothers. Both are lost. We need the Father to pursue us. We need to repent of something just besides the insolence and the squandering of life. We need to repent of, as, as one commentator puts it, we need, to be, we need to repent of the reason we're doing good things. We stayed good to get the wealth and the status. We have been good to try to earn, but that's not how you get inside the home. Tim Keller said the difference between a Christian and a moralist is this. Christians repent of what they've done wrong, but they've also learned to repent for the reasons they've done right. Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. The other thing is, and I think it's, a, it's, it, it's hidden here in the text, that the older brother, a good older brother, should have sought the younger brother. And the picture that we do get of Jesus is an older brother, he even says he's not ashamed to call us brothers, who came to seek and to save who? The lost. Grace is the undeserved favor of God bestowed upon those who are positively deserving of the wrath of God. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead. We were enslaved. We were condemned. So what hope is there? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And it sort of seems like an early hymn because you're going to have this chorus. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You've entered into the home. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Let me finish with Spurgeon's conclusion to the sermon I already quoted some of. From the text, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. He finished his sermon with this illustration. This is our conclusion. Let us suppose a case by the way of illustration. Here is a man, ragged, dirty, coal begrimed. Okay, old wording. He's all covered in coal. Who has received a message from her most gracious majesty, Queen Victoria. It reads in this wise, you are hereby commanded to come. Just as you are to our palace at Windsor to receive great and special favors at our hand, you will stay away to your peril. The man reads the message and at first scarcely understands it. So he thinks, I must wash and prepare myself. Then he rereads the royal summons and the words arrest him. Come just as you are. So he starts and tells the people in the train where he is going and they laugh at him. At length, he arrives at Windsor Castle. There he is stopped by the guard and questioned. He explains why he has come and shows the queen's message, and he is allowed to pass. He next meets with a gentleman in waiting who, after some explanations and expressions of astonishment, allows him to enter. 
When there, our friend becomes frightened on account of his begrimed and ragged appearance. He is half inclined to rush from the place with fear when he remembers the works of the royal command. Stay away at your peril. Presently, the queen herself appears and tells him how glad she is that he has come just as he was. She says she purposes that he shall be suitably clothed and be made one of the princes of her court. She adds, I told you to come as you were. It seemed to be a strange command to you, but I am glad you have obeyed and so come. Spurgeon continued, I do think this is what Jesus Christ says to every creature under heaven. The gospel invitation runs thus. Come, come, come to Christ just as you are. But let me feel more. No, come just as you are. But let me get home to my own room and let me pray. No, come to Christ just as you are. As you are, trust in Jesus and he will save you. Oh, do dare to trust him. If anybody shall ask, who are you? Answer, I'm nobody. If anyone objects, you are such a filthy sinner. Reply, yes, it's true. So I am. But he himself told me to come. If anyone shall say, you are not fit to come, say, I know I am not fit, but he told me to come. Therefore, come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is willing, doubt no more. And with that, Spurgeon ended his sermon. Grace alone, the undeserved favor of God bestowed upon those who are positively deserving of the wrath of God. Praise the Lord for his grace alone. Let's pray.